The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the latest business headlines and get brilliant and free advice from the boardroom. And as always, if you want advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, simply email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterNogging. Gentlemen, last week talked about the impact of the potential extension of the COVID passport scheme. On Tuesday, Nicola Sturgeon opted not to go ahead following protests from business. Yet there's been no real material change in the infection rates. A political decision or a health one, Tom? Well, they're politicians, so they only make political decisions, um, Donald. But I actually, you know... I actually thought it was a decent decision. I think it showed that um, perhaps the politicians are listening to business. You know, we had Paul on last week. I know a few people were slitting their wrists after listening to Paul and all the rest of it. (laughs) But um, um, I think it was a sensible decision. I think speaking to people in the trade, they're saying, right, well, goodness, it's not as bad as we thought it would be. And we can get on with our, our Christmas trade. So, yes, a political decision, absolutely, but not a bad one. So, Willie, a sensible decision? Oh, 100%. And I, I think the show should take a wee bit of the credit for it, and especially Paul Watterson last week. So, obviously, somebody's been listening, uh, and I think it was absolutely the correct decision. I'm sure that everyone, you know, who has a bar, a club, a nightclub, must be, you know, the pressure is off because I think they were dreading the if the decision went the other way, I don't know what people were going to do for Christmas and New Year. Well, the pressure's off here, but parts of Europe facing a lockdown as cases of COVID increase. How much of an impact does that have on business here, Tom? There was a great piece in the media this week don't think it was in the Herald, but it might have been Donald. <laughs> I just thought when you said great piece, I automatically <laughs> yeah, assumed. It probably was. It probably was. <laughs> from from Kate Bingham, who's the lady who, who came up with um, driving the vaccines forward. So on the one hand, it's to be celebrated that Britain is further ahead than others. So somebody in government took a courageous step in backing Kate Bingham because she went to the government and said I need a billion pounds and I don't know if I can do this because she comes from the world of venture capital she's used to failure but somebody in government took the courageous step to say yes, on you go and now we're in a better position than most because the politicians of France the politicians of Germany need to look at themselves in the mirror because they politicised the vaccines. Oh, no, it, we're, we can't take AstraZeneca, etc. How would you feel if you were French or German right now? I'll tell you what, those politicians let them down. So there's not a lot to celebrate about Westminster politicians, but that is one of them. And I don't know who it was that made the brave decision, but I'd like to say thank you to them. I'm sure we'll come on and have a go at other Westminster politicians in the show. I, I, I've been astounded this week, you know, obviously what's happened in Austria and obviously the the very um, sudden press conference with Angela Merkel the day before and what's happening in Germany. 
But I've been astounded to find out the lack of the uptake of the vaccines in this country. They're nowhere near where we are. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I can't believe it. And it's it's a shame that now the decisions they're making, obviously the lockdown Austria, I think the way it's going, they're going to lock down Germany, right? Or big parts of it. I think it's a, it's an absolute shame for these countries that the politicians haven't led the way that the politicians have done in the UK. So we are getting it right in the UK then. Gents, are you agreed on that? We are leading yeah. Europe. I well, think so. I, th- I think on that one issue, Britain is leading the world, Donald. Somebody's got, to get a pat, a somebody's got to get a pat on the back and, and nobody actually from government and it's not like politicians have come up and said yes I made that decision I, I don't think anybody's took that bow really. I, I think the, the medical advisors um, have to take a lot of credit yep. and I think the way they've got the message across as well I think the marketing campaigns have been really really good you know, they've, they've got the young musicians that are out there trying to get the younger people to take up the vaccines all of that is all helped um, but I definitely think that uh, that we feel safer and securer here in the UK. I think than most people must feel in the in the continent at the moment. But, but also as well, I was asking the question yesterday that we're now nearly all of the young people have had their, their two jabs and we're now getting more boosters. We're getting more flu jabs. Um, obviously, we discussed it, mentioned it last week. But uh, I think it's the one thing where nobody can point the finger at the UK and say that we were certainly asleep at the wheel when it came to vaccinations. Isn't it amazing how the narratives changed? Because very early on in the crisis, they were saying the messaging was confused. There was the deliberate difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK in messaging. But are we now saying finally we're getting it right? I'd like to make a point here, a big, big point, right? And people should learn from this. When... People seen what was happening in Lombardy in Italy. Everybody panicked, right? Everybody panicked and we all were concerned we're going to run out of ventilators, we're going to run out of PPP, we're going to... And and my one bit of advice to all the politicians is is to... Maybe it's worthwhile to take that wee bit more time to get scientific data before you go down. I'm sure, uh, you know, that... If they could go back now and say we made these mistakes and we could have done this and done that but I just think the learning here was is that people when they looked at what was happening in the north of Italy they thought it was Armageddon and I think that really if we would just took our time a wee bit and said no here's what we really need to do we never all the money everything that we've done loads of the things that we've done we never needed any of it Tom. yeah I mean nobody and I remember Willie and I speaking to each other at the time nobody living had lived through this or anything like it so nobody had the experience really to go right I know how to deal with this I've been through one before so this was new to everybody so I take Willie's point but I've got sympathy with the politicians because nobody in business nobody alive had actually lived through a global pandemic of of this nature and therefore they were making it up as they went along and Mistakes were made, for sure, but I think Britain actually dealt with it, with hindsight, very well. And we're in a good position today because of it. Crikey, so we've had sympathy, uh, understanding and praise for politicians. <coughs> Let's see if we can continue that <laughs> theme, because Boris Johnson made a very interesting speech at the CBI conference during the week. 
Did the Peppa Pig references inspire you, Willie? And was it a positive message for business? Oink, oink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would have to say that um, (laughs) 20 years ago, I think... uh, Somebody with two white coats would have come on and helped Boris off the stage and took him into a back room, you know, to check him out. I mean, it was bizarre. I've never seen anyone in my life, because he's lost the page of where he should be reading from the script, where went off on a rant that even in his case is off the scale, right? It was it was bizarre, absolutely bizarre. And then, I couldn't believe it, they dig up the one minister, Dominic Rapp, to do the early mornings broadcast the next day. And the reason why they chose him, he had been a pepper pigland, right? <laughs> and I couldn't believe it when it was all set up for Kay Burley to ask him at the end, and Dominic, have you been? And he says, oh, yes, right? He must have been the only guy in the cabinet. I thought what happened the day before was, honestly, I was I nearly fell off my seat laughing. Uh, you know, we've all been there when you're, you're doing a speech and sometimes your notes are slightly out of order and it's a terrible thing and stand in front of an audience. Sympathy for him then, Tom? Well, here we go. So I actually thought Dominic Rabb trying to justify the speech was, was even more cringeworthy than Boris losing the plot because Dominic Rabb's a straight-laced politician trying to talk about Peppa Pig that was cringeworthy, Willie. Whereas Boris is Boris. Let Boris be Boris. And I've always given him the benefit of the doubt and he's he's not a typical politician and polished. And I actually quite like, he's a wee bit different. But that was a lot different. And I think, I think Britain looked like a laughing stock because of that speech. I think the businessmen and the audience... I mean, when the camera panned to them, they were like, what are we doing here? I don't think there's an excuse for that. And I think Boris's leadership, there'll be people in the Tory party going, right, come on. The the, the biggest laugh was the advisors afterward <laughs> trying to say that he was trying to make a point to business leaders about the economic uplift we got from selling the pepper pig. I mean, it was it just got worse and worse. I mean, it was like opening a wee hole and digging, 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 and as Tom says, Dominic Rab the following day. <laughs> I had just about stopped laughing, right? It was like 8 o'clock in the morning when I seen Dominic Rab and I started busting my sides again. It was hilarious. <laughs> Uh, well, a quick exit for Boris, as he said, vroom, vroom, as he said during the speech. <laughs> Bonkers, <laughs> Boris. So, made me think, what's the best and worst major speech you've ever heard? It's a tough one for you this morning. So, I loved President Barack Obama's speech at the Washington Correspondents' Dinner when he called out Donald Trump. Oh, yes, yes. And <laughs> the background to that speech It had two major ramifications. First of all, President Obama was getting briefed about Osama bin Laden and the special forces going to kill Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. So he had that going on in his head while he was having a go at Donald Trump. And the consequences were that I think probably that night Donald Trump decided he was running for president and... Osama bin Laden got killed. So to have all that going on in your head and deliver what President Obama thought was a great put-down 
actually caused one of his great rivals to take power. So the unintended consequences. So on the one hand, he thought he was putting down Donald Trump and getting Osama bin Laden. He only got one of them. Great Willie. I thought one of the most humbling and bravest speeches i ever seen, and it sticks in my mind, was F.D. Clerks at the end of apartheid in South Africa. I oh, thought it was sure. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, when I, I, and it's, it's the reason why I thought it was so good. I just remember it. And any time, I've never been asked as often, but, and it's obviously, it resonates, obviously he passed away you know, recently. But I thought that speech, no one could have ever imagined a speech like that in the parliament in South Africa. No one. So obviously, touch on the worst speeches from a leader. Maybe get a wee bit of a help here, uh, Willie. Connor Goldson, after that uh, humiliating defeat, uh, Rangers suffered at the weekend, last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you I'm went there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, I'm just yeah. opening seven, myself just up. Just set him up here, you've got Boris Johnson, the Rangers of, captain. Seven degrees of separation, we go from the <laughs> Senate in South Africa to Hamden Park at the weekend. Yeah, I would have to say that uh, watching that, that that will not be his finest moment, but it was then followed yesterday, I don't know if you've seen it, Donald, when uh, Alan McGregor was wheeled out to sit beside GVB at the press conference, and when they tried to, you know, get him drawn into it, say, what did you think? And and he was brought, he says, well, you guys know, I don't read the papers, I don't watch the TV, so let's move on. I don't know what he says. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, nobody's told him. But yeah, that was, uh, that. I've got to say to you, I thought the, the one that the captain didn't turn up to speak, that was a problem. Secondly, when he did turn up to speak, actually, that half an hour after the game was actually worse than the result of the game, I thought. Yeah, I was just trying to bring it into a leadership context because you've got the new manager sitting in the stands, you're seeing the team crumble. Uh, your workforce, if you like, know that you're taking over, but didn't venture down a time of crisis. Now, there was the talk, supposedly, of work permits, but that doesn't stop yeah. you talking. No, that was that, that was poor. That you, was poor. You'd be and to kicking be fair, in the door. Yeah, yeah. A few, a few Rangers greats. I mean, Barry Ferguson said, and I think Alec Ray said that that was. And and the again, no, we're talking about the Pepper Pig clear up the next day to try <laughs> for 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 Ross Wilson to see the next day. It's because he didn't have a you know a, a permit to work or whatever. I don't think that stops you shouting at somebody. I think <laughs> we're straying in, into difficult territory here, Donald. Yeah, he could have went into the dressing room and said to David McCallum, "Tell them." Tell him to get a finger out. <laughs> well, I'll try. I'm keeping it within a business context because it is important as leaders that you get your message across uh, to your team. So what what does make a great speech and how would you inspire your business team? It's all about relevance for me. You know, it depends. You've got to know your audience and you've got to understand what the audience want to hear and what the audience need to hear. And those are two sometimes very different things, you know, and whether you're, you're giving good news and it's a, right, we're all going in one direction and we're all together, that's an easy speech to give. More difficult speeches is if you're laying people off. You've been through it at the at the Herald, Donald. I mean, it's, I, I remember watching the TV programme that, that followed at the Herald, you know, and I felt real sympathy because you're trying your best, but you're always delivering very difficult news and those are the hardest things to do for sure yeah, when when you're backs to the wall your number one job as a leader is to inspire right is to get people to forget about what's actually going on paint a different picture try and inspire them and I have to be honest 
as a, that half hour is a lesson in what not to do when you have to try and uh, spur people on. Yeah, so you, people think they're listening to a business show and we've t- talked about football, but in all aspects of life, these business lessons are important. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, your favourite pal, uh, Sunak, um, <laughs> who Willie says will not be around for much longer because his bubble will burst, seems to be battling away with a new pal, Boris Johnson, who seems to have handled uh, all the COVID crisis very well. So, they're not best buddies and they don't see eye to eye in policy. How long do you think Boris is going to remain as Prime Minister? Can, can I just say, can I just say about Rishi, I bet he woke up the other morning and was absolutely delighted he'd never been to Pepper Pigland. So we had to get Dominic Rab to go on the telly. Well, it's Pepper Pig World, get it oh, sorry. right? Come Pepper on. Pig World. Uh, but I should know this, my, my grandkids have given me Pepper Pig every single day. I should have a buzzer noise every time he gets the wrong point. Yes, yes. Vroom, vroom. Yes. <laughs> so, come on, how long has Boris got then, Tom? And you think well, your man's going to take over? Goodness, you keep painting this, my man. Come on, behave yourself. So I honestly have no idea. I think, <laughs> I think after that, the powers that be in the Tory party will be having a wee, a wee glass of wine um, round behind closed doors, going, "What on earth is going on here?" Um, but um, I don't know if Rishi Sunak would make the leader. It's a very interesting thing. Number twos sometimes make good number ones, but not always. You know, you look at Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown was an outstanding chancellor, but struggled as the leader. And these things sometimes, they just don't work. John John Swinney, an outstanding politician in my eye, didn't cut it as the leader of the SNP. So... You know, do number twos make great number ones? Not always. And maybe Rishi Sunak is clever. Maybe he doesn't want it, Donald. Mm-hmm. Willie, what's your view? If he's clever, he certainly shouldn't want it. But it's interesting, you know, in the polls during the week, you know, that all the political leaders have all dropped in the ratings. Yeah. Some of them drastically. Mm-hmm. So um, that is interesting. And I, I I don't think that Richie Sunak is killing to get the job. I think if it comes about, but that he, he may get it. But I think after the debacle of this week, you know, and what happened to the CBI speech, I think the Tories at the moment behind the scenes will be having conversations. If it's not them, him, then who is it? I definitely think that'll be happening this week. Yeah. What difference, if any, does the infighting have on the UK PLC? I think you're doing what the press do. You're 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 saying there's infighting. I don't know, to be honest with you, about the I'm infighting. Not we're getting it wrong. Well, I'm I mean, just we're saying very well briefed here. I'm just saying it's the press's job to to talk up these infighting because it's good well, that's copy. Different. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, being a politician is a difficult enough job. Running a country whether it be Scotland or the rest of the UK, um, it's a difficult job. So if you've got something else going on and somebody's trying to undermine you, as always seems to happen in politics, it it makes it even more difficult. Your eyes off the ball and it makes for a worse outcome for the people you're supposed to be representing and who voted you in. I think that... Um 
No one will have to try and take Boris Johnson out. Boris Johnson will take himself out. <laughs> Seriously, I think there's there's more Pepper Pig to come. Right? Um, and uh, and I think that over the next twelve months, it, it, at the moment, if we were not talking about COVID, there is so many politicians who would be under a spotlight at the moment who are not getting asked the hard questions. And I think as this dust starts to settle and hopefully things get much much better with the pandemic, you know that I I think that there'll be there'll be moves to change the leadership of the Tory party within the next 12, 18 months. But but let's talk about Scotland as well. Yes, well, she's staying on, isn't she? And uh, made it clear she wants to continue as FM mm-hmm. and push for independence. Yes, yeah, so I, I think um, whenever a politician says they're going, they're then a lame duck mm-hmm. leader. Yes. So she did the right political move. To say she's going to bring a new independence debate before the end of 2023, I think, is a wrong move. I actually believe in another Scottish independence debate, but not now. We have got so many things in front of us. We're coming out of a global health crisis and the unintended consequences of that in Scotland for the undiagnosed cancer I mean, I talk to people in the health service and the health service is at crisis point for all sorts of reasons. So if that was the only thing politicians had to solve, that would be big enough. We've then got education in Scotland, you know, which I'm a little bit involved with and I am gutted that we're running down, going down the PISA ratings. Scotland used to lead the world in education. It doesn't anymore and it needs to again. So there's another thing to focus upon. And then we've got the economy, Willie. You know, GDP has slowed again. Where is Scotland's economy going? How are we going to focus it? How are we going to get growth? How are we going to pay for the Scotland that we all agree should be a civil society in Scotland? How are we doing it? So therefore, if any one of those crises were there, politicians would have a hard job. We've got three crises happening and we don't need a constitutional crisis. It's not what the people of Scotland need today. Well, Nicola would argue that if she's it was an independent Scotland she'd have the power to actually make the right decisions rather than have it foisted upon them by the UK, Tom. That's a wrong argument, Donald. Scotland is the most devolved parliament in the world. We have got the powers and the levers, mostly, to do what we need to do. Health is devolved, education is devolved, and quite a lot of the economic levers are devolved. Not them all, though. Not them all. I I will give them that. But come on, put the people of Scotland first here because I'm telling you, bringing an independence debate by 2023 is not in the interests of all the people of Scotland. Almost 50% of the Scottish uh, voting population are looking for independence, so is she not putting the people first then, Willie? Well, in the polls this week, it's saying 46 and people will tell you that's a big, big difference from 50 Right, it's, it is the difference. I think Tom is right. I think the First Minister said what she had to say, right? The minute that you say that you're leaving, then everyone run about you falls apart, right? You, you've got no mandate. And so I, I think Tom is right that 
We should be concentrating the background and the things that are not right. We should be heralding all the things that are right. Tom's point about the, the levers that we have, I actually don't think we use all the powers that we've got. And I would certainly, while we're all talking about maybe having another conversation about independence and then, you know, having the whole debate whether Boris Johnson was give us the go-ahead or not, all of that. So no matter what happens, I don't think, as long as Boris Johnson is the leader of the Conservative Party in Britain, there's no chance of the UK government giving the go-ahead. And I think Nicola knows that. Right, so it's easy to say, I want to bring the conversation, I want to do this, I want to do that, but it's not to say that, that, that she, if she got her way, she would not have one in 2023, whatever. But I would say that what we should be doing is try and get more powers. Argue right now for the things that you might get. You know, I would, I would love to be totally devolved and then we might be able to demonstrate that we could be more prosperous and we would be better off as, as an independent country, if that's the case. And what that does is it proves that you get your cake and eat it. You can prove that you're right. You can prove your argument without severing the ties and then when you know everyone's, you're comfortable with what you're doing, you can then have a negotiation about what you want to do to take it to the final stage. But for me, what I'd be doing in the next... Not just now, we've got too much to do with the pandemic. Not just now, but maybe at, towards the end of 2022, 2023, then I would encourage the Scottish Government to try and, if we can, get more powers from the UK. I would totally agree with Willie. Surely the argument is, look what we've done with the powers we've got. We can govern responsibly. We have did well in education. We've did sorted the health service. We've got the economy on a trajectory. Imagine what we could do if we had all our powers. But the argument seems to be, oh, the few powers we don't have are really holding us back. That's just wrong. No. The truth of the matter is, Donald, the few powers that we don't have is the ones that they don't want. <laughs> right. What are those powers then? Well, <laughs> DWP. Right. So would you want that tomorrow? Right, with the cost that comes with that? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Tom, for the benefit of radio listeners, are pulling your face there. <laughs> Perfect face for radio, Donald. Yes, for radio. Yeah, but what we're saying here is, look, let's get involved in a conversation here, but there's nobody like, better than me and Tom want things to work in Scotland. Aye. Right, so let's, you know, this is not, let's just sit here and slag everybody off and they're not doing this. So let's get a debate going here where we can make Scotland better. And from my point of view, these are not political statements. Yeah. I want what's best for the people of Scotland. Yeah. And what's best for the people of Scotland at the present time is not another independence debate. Let's do it from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. Well, I agree. Indeed. Coming up after the break, we'll be delving deeper into Lord Hockey's remarkable business life story. Ooh. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back as we turn the guest spotlight on Lord Hockey and take a fascinating look at his remarkable business success story. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, we would be delighted to hear from you. Simply email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Well, we're going to find out a wee bit more about you and it's by popular demand because 
my listeners say, come on, tell us a life story. And you keep alluding to some funny wee tales, but I'm going to take you right back to the start when you first started making money as a nine-year-old growing up in the Gorbals. Tell us, take us from <coughs> there. That's your first money-making venture, if you like. Uh, yes, like like all kids in the Gorbals, most of your parents, there was no such thing as pocket money back in those days. They didn't have any to give you. So if you wanted anything, any luxuries in life, you had two choices. You either stole it or you worked for it, right? <laughs> and uh, I just decided I'm going to need to work for it. And uh, I, I kind of, this is probably when the whole entrepreneurial thing first kicked in. And I realised that, uh, you know, there was a lot of old houses, there was a lot of doors, wood lying about. So I decided that I would um, start to take down the old doors out the tenements. You need to remember I was about four feet nothing at the time. So that was a bit difficult. But uh, I used to chop up sticks and you know, some people have heard some of these stories, but I would sell sticks to the pensioners and uh, I would, when I was selling the sticks, if I didn't want to buy any, I'd ask them, did they want me to go for any messages, groceries, and you'd get a wee tip for that. And then uh, the progression from that and making some money then to getting a job as a, on the milk, delivering milk at 11 years old from, you know, believe it, a horse and cart. A horse and cart. <laughs> and... Uh, and it was great, and I went on to, I don't believe it, I was delivering milk for the next six years. I was still delivering milk when I started my apprenticeship. I loved back, it so back, much. Back in those days, chopping up the wood, um, hopefully that's where you got the nickname Hatchet Willie, is that it? Or, you know, growing up in the gorbals, never quite sure. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so yeah, the story behind that is I had this small hatchet that where the handle had been halved in two. So I used to have this, it was only a small bit of wood, and I would have it sticking at the back of my shorts and everybody would see this hatchet. And uh, so that's that's why I kind of got that nickname. Not because I was running about with the combi hitting people with no. hatchets, no. And, and, and Wally, what did, your, what did your dad do? Was, was there yeah. anything in the background that could have foretold the entrepreneurial journey? No, my, no. my dad was a painter and decorator, you know, a house painter. Right. And, uh, and then when he was uh, conscripted into the army, he was sitting watching the guys playing cricket and uh, he, got, he, he wasn't looking and he got hit with a cricket ball on his back and his lung collapsed. So know? the fumes of the paint and all of that stuff, he was a wee bit struggling. So when he came back, after that, I mean, he, he got a job in the post office and he worked in the sorting office in George Square for many years. And then I think as, as uh, kind of medicine moved on, he was okay, then he went back to his trade, he was back. But no, all his life he was a tradesman and uh, or, or he worked right. in the GPO. So there was no... In fact, his brother, my uncle Frank, was the only entrepreneurial guy out the brothers and he had a business, he had a small building business and not far from here in Devon Street, you know, two-minute walk for many years. Uh -huh. So that's probably the only entrepreneurial bit. And my auntie owned a small shop as well in the Gorbals. And, and Willie, when you, when you look back now with the benefit of hindsight about your entrepreneurial journey, was there, was there things along the way where you just went, right, like when you come back from the Middle East, why did you want to have your own business rather than work for someone else? What was the... What was the, the reason? Uh, good question. I remember as a 15-year-old uh, at my uncle's house up in Alexander, paid my uncle Willie, who was a footballer, and uh, and he asked me, I was just getting ready to leave school, and he asked me what I was going to do when I left school. Mm -hmm. And I'd never thought about this, and I just blurped out, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm definitely going to have my own business. 
Really? Right, and I had never thought about that. I didn't think, and maybe after that, it made me think about it more. But I think the independence, see that earning money, working as a kid, doing what you're doing, I think that kind of made me think about, you know, this This is the way to do it. Make your own ideas. Hard work hard and you'll make money. And, and was there role models about the Gorbals in those days or Glasgow that you went, right, goodness, I, I, I want to be like him or her right. or whatever? When I was a kid in the Gorbals, um, there was a, a local man called uh, Willie Telfer and he had a small business uh, doing catering. He'd done outside catering. And it's interesting, he, he kind of used to run, he ran the BB and he'd done catering, whatever. So here's a wee interesting story for you, Don. So I would go and help him with catering. Okay, so he'll say, right, well, I've got a big gig on Friday night and we'd go and you'd peel the potatoes or you'd help do whatever. You'd be working in the kitchen of the of the venue. And uh, I remember once we went to, we we're, were doing a, he said, this is a big, big deal. Because I knew that like, he'd maybe have about 10 staff and there was about 15 or 16 staff this night. He said, no, this is a big gig, big gig. You know, 240 meals and I want everybody on there. We ought to be dressed, good. Sh-. And I'm saying like, I was about 14, right? I'll, I'll never forget this. And he took us to this place in Rulligan and went into this room and it was all, all I remember it was all men who were all very smart. And we were in the kitchen. The kitchen was downstairs, so we went downstairs and then there was this almighty rumble, right? This noise came from the room. It was, was that? It was like thunder. And he, and he, and I says, "What is that?" Anyway, oh no, don't, don't, don't worry, don't worry, right? I said, what, is, "What is that? Is the police falling down? Whatever." Anyway, after it, like a, a couple of years after it, I was a wee bit older, and I said to Willie, "Willie, see that event where we were doing this thing? What was that?" He goes, um, "Well, I can tell you, Willie." He goes, uh, "It was the Masonic Halls in Rilligan, and that was the guys clapping." <laughs> <laughs> with her feet I went alright okay so that was my first experience right, of that uh, above the Viking uh, Baron Rulligan so Willie Telfer moved from doing outside Kate and then he wanted to have a shop and have another shop and I was kind of on that journey so really I would need to say that Willie Telfer was probably my role model for entrepreneurship right and then you're you know you're known for giving back now Willie <laughs> so where does the so we've got the entrepreneurial journey and the giving back, where where do you think that comes from? Oh, easy from remembering having nothing. Really? Easy. Yeah, right. dead easy. Yeah, and I watched a programme during the week about Bible John. And Aye, it's amazing I, I when it showed you the tenements. Aye. The empty houses and there was a woman and a young kid living there and they had no windows. I, I remember, I remember my friend and thinking, I thought we were poor and I grew up in the house and he's, he didn't need windows. Goodness no, me. they'd put a cloth up but they'd put whatever and... I mean, back the win- the winters then. So I remember, you know, that that's it's been a great the the education and being brought up in the, in the Gorbals is a great grounding, and that's why I think you always want to give back. And that's why, to be fair, as well, I'm always trying to keep the giving back parochial, you know. So no, you know, I so yeah. you know, I want to keep it in the in the area that I come from, in the village that I come from. We do stuff outside of that, but I really like to try and help the people run about. Your roots are obviously important to you, but going back, you decided to leave to go to the Middle East. That must have been a really big decision to leave Glasgow to for the unknown. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, funny, when I was serving my time as an apprentice, the engineer I worked with, Ian Elder, uh, went away to Canada and he immigrated. And uh, I thought, no, that might be something I want to do. Uh, and I was young, I was still only 18, 19, I was thinking about it. And I remember writing away and I got a job in Bermuda. 
And yeah, wow. and I went away to find out about how, and, and uh, what I didn't know then, because it was a British territory, it had been dead easy for me to go to Bermuda, right? And uh, as I got into it, I was still playing football at the time and I was loving my football. And that was the thing at the end where I decided, no, I'm, I'm kind of, I liked my life balance. And I decided I was kind of, you know, getting right into the football at the time. And I thought, no, you know what, I'll, um, I'll, I'll leave it, I'll stay here a while. And then obviously a few years later, when I got the chance to, to go to the Middle East, um, so was that just money, Willie? Yeah, that was money. That was and, just, and, and to just, be fair, it was I'd save my time in refrigeration, and then I was getting involved in air conditioning. But way back then, in the early eighties, air conditioning was still really in its infancy in Scotland, and I thought it'd be good for experience. And so that was a chance. But but money was the primary thing. So I went from earning about a hundred and sixty pound a week to earning a thousand pound a week. Tax wow! Day. Wow! And did you research or looked in a what life would be like in the Middle East. I had a friend who worked there, a guy called Davy Petty, who'd worked with me, and Davy phoned me and says, look, there's a job here. It just shows you how fate, right? It's interesting. Uh, I went there as as the head of engineering. Uh, I was going to work under a general manager, a big cockney guy that worked there, and I was working in a, an oil refinery out in the desert, right in Ruiz, just outside Abu Dhabi. And this is how fate plays a big hand. The weekend before I got there, what used to happen on a Friday, they would have a kind of pool party and this big Cockney guy who was the, the, the GM really pushed the head of engineering from Shell into the pool, <laughs> right, and, and got the sack. So I I arrived there on, let's say it was the Monday morning and I'm staying in the Sheraton Hotel in Abu Dhabi. I'll never forget it and there's a car coming to get me the next day and uh, a guy says, no, wait, this is what happened. A guy says, no, you have to wait here for one more day. I said, why? He says, well, the big boss is flying in from America. I was working for UTS Carrier, which is the largest air conditioning company in the world, right? If you took all the other air conditioning companies and put them together, it didn't come to half the size of UTS Carrier. Right? Wow. This was the, the guy who invented AC. So um, I said, okay, I'll wait. And I'll never forget it. This guy flew in. He was one of the senior VPs, a guy called Jim Weiss. And he flew in and, and we had breakfast in the hotel the following morning. <laughs> and he said to me, look... He says, look, I know we've brought you from the UK, you know, blah, blah, blah. He says, this is, he says, we've got a problem. We might be losing the contract. <laughs> I says, okay, this could be the shortest stint ever, right? And by the way, I'd agreed to rent out my house, you know, all sorts of things that were, you know, going on. So anyway, um, I, uh, we drove out 240 kilometres into the desert and I'll never forget it. I was driving and I kept looking around and this guy, the sweat was just running off. The car was cold and the sweat <laughs> was running off, the, but he was... He was bricking it, right? So this is true, and this is a great story for Scotland. I might have told this before. We walked in, it was a porter cabin, and he opened the door and he walked in, and there was a guy sitting behind a desk, just about five feet in front of us. He was a giant, right? He was like six feet six both ways. And Harold Sturman was his name. He just looked up and went, Ugh. he grunted. And he says, hi, I'm, I'm Jim Weeson. Uh, you know, I'm the VP of Carrier, and we know what happened last week, and blah, blah, blah. And I swear to what happened. And he said to me, and this is uh, Willie Hawkey, who's coming as head of engineering, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he, and I put my hand forward, and he put his hand forward, and I says, I'm, I'm pleased to meet you, I'm pleased to meet you. And he looked up, and he says, Scottish? And I says, yes. And he went like Jimmy, you can go. <laughs> Evan's okay. Really? I swear, I swear. This is my first experience, and I'll tell you why you've done that, you know, now. Uh, and Jimmy says, like, goes, no, Evan's fine. Okay, oh, you leave him, wow. you go. He came all the way from Syracuse, New York, there. He was in the room for two minutes and he went and he said to him, no, no, don't panic, things will be fine. 
So Jim Weiss is like, I'll, I'll call you, I'll call you. Just shooting out and jumped away. I'm standing there. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where the office is. Anyway, I sat down and, and uh, Harold Sturman said to me... So this was the head of Shell? The head of Shell, the head of engineering for the whole place. Wow. Right. And he said to me, uh, where are you from in Scotland? And he, I said, I'm, I'm from Glasgow. And he says, I'm from Bramahaven. He says, and I remember after the war, he says how the people came and helped us rebuild and those big shipyards, big uh -huh. industrial place. He goes, I have great respect for the Scots. And from that day on, the next two and a half years, it was just a joy for me. So Scotland saved right, you? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. a brilliant story. Mm -hmm. Brilliant yes. story. And I became the general manager. I got promoted. So as soon as Jim we seen what happened there, I went from being <laughs> the head of engineering to, to the general manager, which was brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. And then, of course, you came back. Um, as you said, but you could have stayed out there for, for riches, but you came home to make... Your yeah, riches. Yeah. yeah, this is um, that whole fate thing there with the guy, the pool, the whole bit, getting me the GM. So really what happened, the two and a half years in Abu Dhabi as working as a GM, it was like a working MBA about how we run a company. So I'd went from going, arriving there, making sure that all the engineering's right, to making sure the P&L was right. Right. Right, and, and then when I learned, I was really entrepreneurial there because I run a mock Right, so I'm supposed to look after, I've got 40 guys to look after this oil um, um, distribution centre in the desert. And to be honest with you, you know, I, I needed four guys and that 40, right? <laughs> but back in the days, and that's just pay, pay, pay. So what happened was the, the place where I was, Ruiz out in the desert, was, right, was burgeoning. So there'd be a, a fertile plant, there'd be a hospital, there'd be new houses. So instead of getting someone from 240 clicks away to come and do their conditioning, I was doing all, because I had such a good rapport with Harold Sturman, I said, Harold, look, I'm going to use the guys and, you know, do this, do this. And there's a wee bit back to Shell. And he's like, fine, you got on me. Don't let us down. We just need to know that we've got the guys when we need them. And for the next two years, I built, I done all the HVAC in the hospital. So really, I was supposed, to, my job for Carrier was to send back $100,000 a month net profit. And then I started sending back 130, 150, 200, 250. So this is true. Two and a half years later, before I came back, Jim Weiss, who'd got promotion, that stuff for me, and says, I'm coming to see you. What are you coming to see? He says, I'm coming to see the machine. I says, what machine? He says, the machine where you're printing all the greenbacks. <laughs> right? So I was like, okay. And I'll never forget this. He flew in to see me, and he said, um, look, this is phenomenal. I'd, I'd 40 Pakistani young engineers working for me who by their standard back home, was probably pro rata to me, that, so they were well paid. And I said to them, look, the guys have been working really, really hard. We've made all this extra money. I want to get them a rise. And he says, no. And I says, what? He says, no, and I'll never forget this. Uh, so anyway, he said to me, these guys back in their villages, Willie, they're all heroes. They're all the richest. You know the richest guy in Glasgow. Some of these guys are the richest guys in their villages. And I, I, and I said to him, Jim, I don't care. They're all battering their melt and I want to give them a bit more. And this is what he said to me. He said, no, no, we'll, just, we'll, we'll give you a bit more. I said, well, I'll tell you what, do you give me a bit more and I'll share it with him. I'll get to... <laughs> and, he, and he wasn't here for having that. And this, this had an effect on me. I had the best job in the world. I had the best pay in the world. I, I would work away for six weeks. I'd be back home for three weeks and i get paid the same money. Right? Brilliant. In fact, my leave cycle was so good, I couldn't tell any of the rest of the expats they were on 12 weeks and one week and 10 weeks and four weeks. An old head, a guy there, Rab said to me, Willie, don't tell them that you're going into town to work. 
<laughs> for two weeks, then you're going home. He says, I'm telling you, because they, they get a jealousy. Anyway, that stuck with me about the mentality of the thinking of the business. And I decided because of that, I was, I was going to start to make my exit and go home. Wow. Right? I had the best job in the world and I didn't like the, the morals. And do you think that gave you an impetus to go, I'll do something for myself. I want to start making my own decisions here. Well, yes, it did. And running the business, you know, the, the you know, everything that goes with running a business. But what what happened when is to end the story, I had the opportunity then, I had a guy who worked for me and his brother, a guy called Sir Lawrence Gambrell, was the head of management for the Sheikh in Dubai, Sheikh McToom. And he said, my brother would like to meet you. Right, and he says, like, have done it with you? I said, sure. So I went to meet him, and uh, he was very proper. You no, know, he was all part of the Raj, you know, and he came back, but he was, you know, Sir Lawrence Gamble, and he was very much, you know, like this. And he said to me, we'd love you to come and look after all the buildings for, for, for Shake McToom, you know, become the head of engineering. He said, but we'd like you to move to Dubai, bring your family, we'll get you a lovely house, all that stuff, right? And it was great. So I came back and uh, spoke to Susan's, okay, and fine, so we'd already decided we're going to rent out the house and all that. And we went to Dubai and we landed there and it was raining. And the PR guy for the Sheikh Medicine says, oh, good luck, good luck, you've brought us good luck, right? Because it was raining that day. Right. Anyway, long story cut short, um, we were there for a few days. They showed us everything. It was amazing, the job, the money, the school, the American school for my son. And then we are getting right into it. And uh, one night we are having dinner and I said to Susan, you're saying yes, but your eyes are saying, no, you don't want to come here. And she says, no. And I said, right, okay, but see if we go home, we're having a go. Right, I'm not going back home to work for somebody. Really? We saved up 70 grand and and that was the reason for setting up City. Well, we're going to talk after this short break about how you use that 70,000 to become as successful as you are. You're listening to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. More chat with Willie and Tom after this short break. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Insight, advice and guidance into the world of business. Welcome back to the Go Radio Business Show as we delve into Lord Willie Hockey's remarkable business success story. Just before the break, you talked about your earnings from the Middle East, 70,000. You had the discussion with Susan, your wife. You're coming home to start your own business, as you say, to make a right go of it. So how did you make a right go of it? Well, just for the record, I, I was still working in the Middle East, so actually Susan set up City <laughs> Refrigeration uh, on her own, uh, and she tells the story at that time, that, so she owned 100% of the shares because I was still officially a tax exile. And uh, <laughs> so we set up in, in 1985, and Susan ran things for the first six months, and I had my young brother as an apprentice and a friend of mine, uh, Donkey Ryan, as our engineer, and then we brought on a spark, uh, Stuart Payton and then a boy called Tony Adams joined us and he's still with us today. Brilliant. Right. Okay. So, um, and I think that we were just determined that, that we were, and I had this idea that before I went away and although I was uh, kind of majoring in AC that I always thought there was a, something stuck in my mind about there was a real niche for a, a refrigeration company that specialised to the licence trade. And, and I, I'll tell you the reason why I had this idea. I was working as an engineer, the young apprentice with me, I was on the roof of Marks and Spencers. It must have been about 1981, 82, before I went to Middle East. We were working with socks off and we, the twos were sweating. I said, right, at lunchtime I'll take you down, there's a wee pub at the corner, we've got a Coke and a pie. 
I came off the uh, Martin Spencer's Renfrew Street, went across to we pub, it was called the Waldorf, went across to this pub and said, so we've got our overalls on, you know, and it says uh, Turner Refrigeration on our overalls. And uh, I said to the guy, he gives a couple of pies, a couple of cokes, so he pie, come across, coke, come across. Two's have drank the coke, like, really warm, and gave it back to the guy. I said to the guy, listen, we're not drinking this, this is like soup. And he says, it's all your fault. He says, it's all my fault. He says, Aye. he points to my badge. He goes, every day I want to phone you in the winter, I've got a whole queue you outside, but see when I really need you in the summer, you're on the roof of Marks and Spencer's. I can't get him to come and fix my cooler, I can't get him to come and fix my ice maker. And that stuck ah, with me. That was the that wee stuck spark. With me. So you'll not believe it, when I got my very first van, a wee second-hand white van, I wrote on it, specialist to the licence trade. <laughs> right, and I spelt licence wrong. <laughs> but to be fair, I did find out you can spell licence two ways. It oh, can be with really? a C or an S. So... Uh, that uh, depending was, on what yeah, context. Uh, exactly, exactly. Driving so, licences with a C for anybody applying to the Herald because uh, I just bend right, every okay. application correct. as an S. Yeah. <laughs> so, as, a, as a dyslexic, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was, you know, I had this idea and then when we set up that we were going to specialise to the licence trade and, and that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. Of course, the licence and trade is, uh, was key to your first real breakthrough when it was a 1986 World Cup final. It's a great story, but well worth sharing again. Yeah, I'd been going around putting my business cards in all the pubs, and I'd went into a big pub in York Street called the, the Videodrome. It was owned by a gentleman called Neville Links, God rest him. On the Sunday of the World Cup final, uh, I got Do a you call. remember who was playing? Yes, Argentina and Holland. Yeah. And uh, I got a phone call from him. I was you don't believe it. I don't know why I was in my office on a Sunday. I think I've told this before. I've been in a Sunday in my life five times in my life. And I was in there first Sunday. For some reason, I'm down in the office and the phone rings. And it's Neville saying, where are you? Blah, blah, blah. I am right in trouble. I am right up creek, right? He says, and I need somebody to come and, and help us out. And I said, so what's wrong? He says, I'm opening up for the first time on Sunday. I've got 600 people coming. I've got all the, the director, the managing director of tenants. He says, and I've got all Radio Clyde, we Jimmy Sanderson and all these guys at the time. He says, my whole system's went down. It's brand new installed this week and I can't get the, the company to come and fix it that installed it. So I says, okay, I'll come and have a look. So I got there. Everyone was coming, I think, at six o'clock at night or whatever time. Anyway, I got there at one o'clock in the day. And unfortunately, the brand new unit they had installed, the compressor was goosed, brand new. So it needed a new engine, which you're never going to get in a Sunday, never going to get it fixed. And he's like, what am I going to do? And I said, well, look, I've got an idea. The the compressor would create this big ice bank with the beer all, and it was called a python, right, where the, the beer went round. And I said to him, see that big ice maker you've got? I says, I will take all the ice out of this and I'll feed it into this and it'll give you an ice bank. So I, what I did was I created an ice bank and I, and I stood there for eight hours, <laughs> continued to lift ice from the ice maker into the, the python. And what happened to it, everyone was great, or the beer, it was a great night. And right at the end of the night, this was about one o'clock in the morning, Neville came to me and he said to me, I want you to be here tomorrow morning at 10.30. I thought, well, for he goes, be here at 10.30 tomorrow. I'm going to have the head of tenants here tomorrow to tell them that you saved their life. Wow. Right? <laughs> and you'll not believe it. I went there at 10.30 the next day and I met a guy who was the head of technical services uh, for tenants, a big guy called Brian Head, lovely guy. And he says, well, look, thanks for having you done. It could have been a nightmare for us. Uh, just go ahead and fix it. Right? Just fix Whatever it takes, go ahead. And no, there's no budget. No, uh-huh. just fix it for us and send us the bill. Thanks. Here's my card. Thanks very much. 
and that was the start of my journey with tenants over the next nine years, which was wonderful. Do you wow. think for any business people listening in, that creativity, that solution-focused approach is what's important, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I think every entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur, is is a problem solver. I mean, and Willie there could have went, no, I'm sorry, the compressor's broken and um, nothing I can do, so cheerio. But Willie wanted to solve the guy's problem. And imagine Willie it just went, no, I can't fix it. It's a compressor. You can't get it today. So I, I, I can sort it for you next week. But his life might have taken a completely different route. But because Willie's a problem solver, he understood, he empathised with the guy, right, we can't have all these people watching the Fitbit and no cold beer. And just that one wee thing, somebody went, you're good, head of tenants, and the rest is history. Did you ever... Contemplate just saying the compressor's ghost. I'm really sorry, or I, I don't imagine so. But just I don't think <laughs> that's ever been the answer to anybody's problem at any no. time that we could have. <laughs> but there's a couple of things to that. And for young budding businesses listening, it all started with doing the hard bit by you know gumshoe going around putting your card in, right? So yes. I'd been to fifty pubs that week. Yeah, right. So that was the first bit that was right to do, and then the call, and then having. You know, a really generous owner of the pub wanted to make sure that we got credit for what we've done and then being appreciated by Brian and the, and the guys at Tenants and thereafter. You know, then then what we've done, to be fair, was we started to bring technology, right? So we tried to be ahead of the game. Uh, I don't know if I've told this story before, but the brewers had, had a specification for 50 years about how you would install a cellar cooling system. And outside, uh, and I should tell you a story because it, it really was the start of, of everything. So what happened was outside of a cellar, you would have an electrical contactor, you would have a timer, you would have an earth leakage circuit break, all the things that you need to make the thing work. Uh, and one time I was, and they would say to you, and they would say, no, 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 stick to the spec. Here's our spec, just do what we say. And so I'm fine. Okay, that's great, that's great. And I thought... I was going every day and go, this is, you could do this much better, <laughs> right? And you could make things much easier, right? So I'm getting nowhere. The guy I'm dealing with, Andy Burley, right, is a great friend. He'd been a friend for 30 odd years, right? He, Andy was the kind of head of engineering. Brian was the big, big boss. So me and Andy would, and Andy would say, no, 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 I get respect for Bass down south. Don't change it. Keep it there. We're all okay, right? So I was like, fine, let's do it. And then one day I get called to a pub, right? Uh, and it was actually Paul Watson's dad, John Watson, <laughs> oh, right? <laughs> and he phoned me, he says, you come in the pub? And I said, so I'm in there, and I said, what's wrong? Oh, the usual, the same mistake, I'm sort of time. When the Draymen come to deliver the kegs, they take them into the cellar, but because it's so cold in there, they switch the switch off outside the cellar, and they go away and they forget to switch it on. <laughs> and I only know when it's not working, when I go to pour a pint four hours later, and all I get is froth, right? And I'm saying, but that's... That's a big... And he says, oh. He says, ah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. I goes, but what about the loss of money? He said, no, no, the brewers are great. They just send you a credit the next day. <laughs> right? So I thought, do they? And he goes, and it happens every week. So I'm at a dinner a couple of weeks later, the, the Scottish Licence Trade Trade Dinner, and I'm sitting with the Chief Executive of Tennis at the time, Angus Meldrum. Lovely big guy, Angus. And I says, Angus, I'm told this story, blah, blah, blah. And I says, how much do you... This is way back, 1980s. I says, how much do you think that you give out in credits... A year he goes, oh, probably half a million pounds. Wow. 
I says, I can save you half a million pounds. I said, it'll not cost you anything. <laughs> she says, how's that? I says, let me do this. So I went back to my, my Spark and I says, right, here's what I want you to do. Design a panel, right? And all we did was take all the bits that were on here, take them out of the cases and put them inside an electronic panel. Then we added a couple of wee lights that told you the mains was on, the compressor had tripped. All that stuff was great for me. Because I knew if the person fell down for a pub and said, oh, our system's not working, but I says, look, what light is what light? And we knew what was wrong. We could remotely diagnose what was wrong. So that was an extra for us, right? Anyway, I'd done this panel, but what I did was, instead of an on-off switch, I put a daily button in the centre, a big red button. So when the guys came to deliver the kegs, they pressed that and the cellar went off and when they left, it automatically come back on after 20 minutes. Ah, so never brilliant. ever again brilliant. did, right? So, but you'll not believe this. So that panel, that electronic panel, I'll tell you a great story about this as well. This is better actually than the city story, right? <laughs> so my spark builds all the panels and I gave him a tenner extra. Right, a tenner for building this electronic <laughs> panel, right? And for he gets, the IP there. He gets Aye. fed up, he gets fed up, right? He gets fed up doing it. So he shows the labourer how to do it. So if you see this intricate electrical panel, you go, oh my God, I wouldn't know where to start. And Stuart had a bit of cardboard, right? And he wrote all the numbers along the top and he wrote red wire down to here, right? Black wire down to here, green wire down to here. And he showed um, Jim Smythe, right, how to build this electronic panel, right? <laughs> Right? Seriously, <laughs> see the bit of cardboard with a diagram on it? I kept it in my safe, right? It was that valuable, right? And Jim made all my panels for years and he thought he was a, you know, he was a labourer, but he was the, 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 the guy that was a genius that built the panels. So you'll love this. Two weeks ago, my brother's watching the final episode of that Virgil the Submarine thing yeah. with Martin Compson. And he sends me a picture of the still for the camera for the TV and somewhere in Fads Lane where we fitted a panel years ago, there's a photo of Martin Compson and here's one of my panels <laughs> right, right beside that. And I couldn't believe it. So that wee bit of ingenuity and changing the spec there really was the reason why. I, I hate using this word, but it's true. Over the next nine years, tenants, Ally Brewers, Scottish Newcastle, Belhaven, we had saturation in installing cellar cooling systems for all the brewers in Scotland. And for anybody listening who's thinking about business and thinking about it, that story just absolutely gets to the nub of it that good entrepreneurs don't accept the status quo. They listen to their customer. They understand there's a better way. Well, he was told, no, 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 but he, he persisted and then he made it better. And when he had the chance to speak to the guy, how much are you paying in credits? Half a million, I can save you that. That was a great sales technique. Who wouldn't want that? So, Willie today would be called a disruptor. Yes. Because he wouldn't accept the status quo. But there's brilliant business lessons there for any of our listeners today. So how do you create that right culture? You know, should it start almost in schools? Being a disruptor, that a disruptor's okay, that failing's okay, trying, you know, and trying and trying again. Well, we, we've got disruptor programmes running in primary schools today. We actually call them disruptors. Really? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, I think that's a subject we'll explore later. <laughs> but just well, to add to that, so I was talking to a guy today who I rate very highly, a boy called Jim Simonetti, who's a coach of kids, right? And they're telling me now that what they're intro introducing now into football training is chaos. Chaos. Right. right? Everyone's yeah. too regimented. Everyone's yeah. too, you know, uh, robotic, right? But chaos. 
Right, and it's funny, God rest him, we're talking about, you know, he's heard the stories about Walter and Ronaldo. Yeah. How did they turn Ronaldo into the player he is? Walter stopped giving fouls at training against him. Right, so you know, kick, kick him, kick lumps at him. And it made Ronaldo pass the ball before he got kicked and do this. <laughs> Darren Fletcher was on the TV last week saying, Walter <laughs> Smith's small time with Ronaldo made him the player he is. So being a disruptor is definitely the, uh, advantageous. And I would say, Donald, what it is is an attitude. Mm-hmm. Now, can you teach and coach an attitude? Mm-hmm. I think you can, um, but you can't just learn by rote because the attitude that Willie's got, right, I'm not accepting that. I can see a better way and I'm persistent and I'm not taking no for an answer. That's an attitude. That's the right attitude and that's what we've got to coach. Yes. So how do you build the right team around you? Because he started off with four and now you're the biggest employer, private employer in Scotland. But it must be with your mindset, how do you get the right balance and how did you create that team that could deliver this global success now? It's, uh, I was doing a talk last week for one of the things Tom's involved with Scale Up and I was telling the guys in the room and uh, people don't believe me. We don't, I've never, in, in 30 odd years in business, I've never sat down at the end of the year and said, right, we're going to be this size next year or this size. We have never set targets. Right? We set measures about what we want to do, but I've never set targets, right? I've, and so I'm saying, just be, get better at what you're doing all the time and people will ask you to do more and more. If I was not asked to go to Australia and open up, I wouldn't have went there. If I wasn't asked to go to America, I had no plan about global domination. I was happy with my business in Scotland, uh, whatever it was doing at the time or in the UK. But when people... So what you do, to answer your question, in that journey, you meet people who you know and trust, right? That you could have as a lieutenant. And today, you know, I have to admit, I highly take in to do with the business because I've got trusted guys. I've got a CEO in Australia and Asia and a CEO in America and a CEO in the UK that all run approximately a third of the business each. 1.5 billion split between the three of them. And I think that... Uh, over the years of doing part of that, and, and I'll tell you what was great, Tupi. Tupi was great. When we transferred all the people who were back in the day we had, we transferred loads of good people, loads of good managers and guys. So we, we, we've been very, very lucky. And I'd have to say, Tupi's a huge part of the success of, of City. I think I still hold the record for transferring 4,500 people for 13 companies into City in a six-week period. It's a really interesting take. Should we tell people what Tupi is? We should tell people what Tupi is. So in the UK, there's a a law that if you're on a contract and you're on a contract full-time and your company loses that contract, then everyone who works here has got the right to transfer to the company that's getting the contract, which is one of the best things we've ever come up with in the UK. So because of that, loads of people through the years, thousands of people have Tupi transferred in for other companies. And then we have sifted through... You know, look at middle managers, managers, and, you know, we've, we've, we've managed to get uh, a lot of good people. Sometimes there's the other view, you're taking over a business, you're inherent the staff, but you want to put in your own team and mm-hmm. you're, you're hampered by Tupi. So, yeah. as I say, a really interesting yeah. take on it. Well, what you can do with that is, to be fair, is if you think the the leadership of that team, you can always parachute in the guy at the top. It's very important for us that people get the culture. Right, and so for us, and that's the, that's one of the downsides of Tupi. You know, you could be getting people who have had a completely different culture, but if you just go in there and work hard, then we'd like to think that people uh, enjoy your culture so it's not hard to get people to mould into yours. Another big lesson here in Willie's story for me 
is that it's very unusual that the person who founded it, but we all know it was Susan, obviously, but the person had the skills at the beginning of starting from nothing actually still runs the business when it's Scotland's biggest private sector employer. But Willie's skill about employing the people and looking at, I need this person for this job and letting them go on with it, it's a skill of spotting talent, giving them the framework in which to operate and letting them go on with it. And Willie will no say it himself, but I'll say it, he is brilliant at that. That's very kind, but but where we've been really lucky, um, over the 35 years, we, we've been through every aspect of running a business. So we've been a private business, we've had a VC involvement, we've had outside influence, you know, Three Eyes bought 67% of the business away back, £6 million way back in 94, we bought them back out. We have dealt with small businesses. I've dealt with boards with some of the... But the learning has been phenomenal. And and what, I've, what I think I've done is I've taken learning from every one of these people, loads of people smarter than me running different types of businesses and taking the learning, the, 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 the lessons from us from ASDA in the early 90s, 2000s, you know, all about management, management training, you know, taking us to gung-ho, all of these things really made us the business that we are today. Those learnings are, of course, what this show is all about. After the break, we're going to go into the boardroom for Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer free, brilliant advice. It really is about tapping into what's what's the issue with your business? What do you think is hampering you from going, making that extra stage to make it really successful? We've got the experts here in the room. So please just email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with free business advice, insight and inspiration. If you have any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines and first up is Richard Charman, who's the head teacher of Hamilton College. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hello, good afternoon. We're delighted to have you on. Um, because we've talked about education many times on this show What's your question for Tom and Willie? Well, I've recently taken over as the head teacher at Hamilton College. We are an independent school for children from 2 to 18. So we're an all-through school. Over the last few years, the school has gone through a number of changes. And I have ambitious plans to continue the positive change um, for our community. What advice would you give me to effectively lead my staff, learners and their parents through this ambitious and exciting time. Right, over to Tom and Willie. I'll come in. I know Hamilton College well. Hi, Richard, it's Willie here. Hi there, Willie. How are you? I'm fine, fine. First bit of advice I would give you, and I'm sure you already know is first thing you have to do is get the parents on side. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be easier to get the staff on side if you've got all the parents on side. Uh, I've been involved over the years with a few private schools you know, through educating my son and my nephews and nieces. Uh, and I know how tough it is, you know, to get everyone on board. But, I mean, Hamilton College has always been seen as a very progressive college. It's got a great reputation. Um, 
and I'm sure you know the, the changes that have been made over the last um, few years have put it in real good stead so I'm sure that you'll continue with that good work but my, my number one bit of advice is is that make sure that you're taking the parents with you and there's no surprises <laughs> Tom you want to add anything? Aye um, Hi Richard it's, it's Tom here so I, I mean I think what, what I would say you, you've definitely sorted out your key audiences you've got the parents you've got the pupils and you've got the staff so my number one thing to you would be go and listen listen to what each of them have got to say and um, once you've listened um, you can then mould it into hopefully it chimes with what you want to do with your ambitions for positive change um, but I think you've got to bring these three sometimes disparate audiences with you you can't do it to them you've got to do it with them and then if you bring them with you they will think it's their idea anyway in the first place and it'll make life a hell of a lot easier Richard can I ask what are your ambitious plans and what are the changes that have been made in recent well, years? Well the, the college has gone through um, some, some changes with regards to um, the structure and setting the aims and ambitions which I really believe in and have adopted since I started and we're now going to, I'm doing a, a strategic review um, at present with regard to our offering within the classroom and out with the classroom. So our co-curricular offering um, is certainly under review at present and the uh, all of those stakeholders, the learners, the staff and the parents are going through a consultation period at the moment um, to improve the offering, uh, to increase and improve the offering to our own learners but also to the, the wider community with a view to raising the profile of, of, the, of the college, but also uh, to increase non-fee income. And uh, with, with regards to the curriculum, to drive academic rigor, to ensure that the needs of every single one of our learners uh, is, is catered for and looked after. As part of those plans, we've talked on this show, Tom and Willie have talked a lot about the need for creativity in education, creating that entrepreneurial mindset. Is that something you recognise as important for developing pupils for to become the bedrock of business in the future? Absolutely. One of our um, values is, in fact, innovation. And we always aim to ask our learners difficult questions to try things new. And, in fact, this morning I was sitting with my school leadership team uh, around my table and asking them some challenging questions about how we can change the leadership of the school to inspire our young, um, our young learners and for them to try things new so when they go out into the world, uh, they can seek the challenges uh, and you know, overcome them. I mean, my big thing uh, as, as the head is really to provide the education for young people in my school through our values. But what I'm really interested in is what they're doing when they're 25, 26, when they're maybe through the next phase of their education, um, when they're ready for employment. So when they go for their first interview, do they have our values and are they upstanding and, and have the traits of a, of a young aspiring leader? Really? Richard, can I come in? Um, one of the observations that I've had over the years being involved in, in private schools is, is that a lot of parents think that just by sending your kids to a private school means they're going to be a genius, right? And unfortunately, most of them are wrong. 
right? <laughs> and a lot of private schools are actually judged on the academic attainment achievements of the kids at the schools. I, I think the perfect school, whether it be a public school or a private school, is that actually the school experience for the kids is a good one. Right, and I've been involved, I go and do talks in, you know, big private school, public schools, um, 1,800 pupils, and I walk in and everybody's got a smile and all that comes from the way that the head runs the school. And I think if you could create a culture where everyone enjoyed their experience at Hamilton College, at the same time, you know, you try to get the academic achievement through the roof, but I think that if everyone said that it was a real positive experience being at Hamilton College, then I think that you'll have you'll see, succeeded. I would I would just add there, um, Richard. I've got three kids, and they and they went to three different schools because one size doesn't fit all in education. That's for sure. And we had to find a different school for each of the way the kids because they all they're all different and they all learn differently. And it, it, it wasn't for us about the academic, it was about the experience. And you've got to decide what Hamilton College stands for and then explain that to prospective parents coming in because one size does not fit all in education and the sooner everybody understands that, the better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I met um, I met a parent recently, and she has uh, five children in five different schools, uh, all in the all independent schools. And she recognised that every single one of her um, children um, had different needs, and then she matched those needs, you know, with 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 the schools. And I would agree with that because I do say to my prospective parents, um, you know, Hamilton College might not be the right school for your son or daughter. However, this is what we do, and this is how we will engage with you as mums and dads or parents and your, your, young, your young child or your children to get the very best for them. And I agree, I agree, and that's, I think that's really, really good advice about the overall holistic experience in the school. Oh, that's great. Wish you every success bringing in those ambitious plans. Thank you for your call, Richard. You. Best of luck, Richard. Good, good luck in the new job. Thank you very good much. There was a cracking interview this week in a rival paper, uh, unfortunately, but it was with Gerald Ronson, one of Britain's oldest business tycoons at 82, still working six days a week. But he, interestingly, he says he's not sure people want to work as hard as they did. So do you think that's true, Tom? Well, I know Gerald, and um, as far as I'm concerned, he's a one-off. He has had a his success because of his sheer determination and incredible work ethic. Um, so I don't think there are many people today want to work as hard as Gerald's worked. Um, I've just finished a book um, about Guy Hans, who was the head of Terra Firma, the um, private equity firm. And, and he actually had a huge work ethic. And he actually says now, looking back at his career, you know, it, it cost him his health, it cost him relationships because he was the workaholic. And at the end of the day, he may have a lot of nothings in his bank account, but is that success? And I think we've all got to look and say, what does success mean for you? Um, and I think I'd be different to Willie maybe, 
I might be different to you, Donald, and it's about what success in your own terms is. And, um, you know, if you worked hard all your life, but you didn't have a, you know, successful home life, or you didn't have kids that were brought up the right way, I mean, that's not success for me. So it's about setting out what your own success criteria is and then trying to achieve it. Really? Yeah, I, I can talk from experience here. I think I've worked very, very hard all my life, even if I was very young, but I've always tried to get that balance and I always try and encourage. So I've been lucky. I think I've worked, you know, five weekends in my life, right? So it's make sure they're getting that time off. And I would rather that my guys work really hard for eight hours and went home than see all that, you're impressed with the guy that comes in at 7 a.m. and puts the lights up. And he's like, no, what was he doing in that time? Right? No, I would, I would definitely encourage people... Um, to, to at least work hard for the time they should be at work, but don't extend. Working hard doesn't mean doing 12 hours a day. No. There's lots of young people seem to have a different mindset um, in the work-life balance. You, know, you think they've getting it right and it's us dinosaurs have been getting it wrong? I, I think some of them are taking it to the extreme, <laughs> right? Some of them where they... Yeah. I think a lot of people think they're working hard, right, and they're not. I think also, though, anybody thinking of starting their own business, you know, it's on you... And you need to put in the graft. You know, there's there's nothing actually beats the hard oh, work yeah. in the early days. If it's only yourself. Yeah. I mean, I when I started, I, I was on my own for the first three, four years. So that was 18 hour days. That was seven days a week. That was, and I wouldn't have got anywhere without that. So there's balance, but it's different things at different points in your life. That's for sure. Yes. But if you're starting your business and it's on you, there's there's no one else you can delegate yeah. it to. You will be doing 100 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's bri brilliant advice to end on. And it's unfortunately, it's all we've got time for. Hopefully everyone's enjoyed the show. If you have any feedback for us or want to know more about how you can get involved, visit thisisgo.co.uk. And don't forget, you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.